All right. Let's jump into the word this morning. We're going to be in 1 John again, verses 1 through 4. I invite you to turn there this morning. This is our fourth week in 1 John, and uh, we are still in the first four verses. So I invite you to turn there this morning, and we will read those verses together, and then we are going to cruise quickly through uh, what we have in front of us here. I'm going to read together with you the first four verses. At the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the Word of God and invite you at that time to respond in true worship and thanksgiving by saying thanks be to God. Let's begin. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we look again at these first four verses of John's message to the New Testament church, I want to draw your attention to the, and I'm going to say this, it's kind of funny. I'm going to draw your attention to the last thing that I said on the first week of our time together in this book. And if you don't remember what that is, it's okay, I'm going to remind you right now. And that was, namely, to point you to John's specific focus. And what is John's specific focus here as he introduces this message to the church? Or rather, not what, but who is John's focus here? It's Jesus. Ding, 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 ding. That classic Sunday school answer, right? It's Jesus. That's right, 100%. You got it right. That is John's focus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the word of life, which was from the beginning, before the beginning, who is and in whom is found true eternal life. And who being incarnated, incarnated in the flesh did not merely appear to be human, but as God he became man a man whom John, along with the rest of the apostles, heard with their own ears, saw with their own eyes, and touched with their own hands. John is speaking of Jesus. And I love this. I love how he opens 1 John because it parallels John 1, 1 through 18, which parallels Genesis 1, right? In this new creative order, seeing Jesus at the beginning. And I love the veiled and dramatic way that John writes, both here in a more brief way, but in the same style as he does in long form in the first chapter of his gospel. This is one of those stylistic ways that I talked about in the first week, that we can see the thumbprint or the fingerprint of this particular apostolic author on this particular work. And so what does John do? He, he builds a, a bit of suspense 
uh, before he unveils the astonishing truth. And, and as you read, can you not like almost not wait for him to actually just say it? Right? Come on, just tell, just say it. Say the name. Tell us who it is. Because we know, right? Praise God. We, we have enough of the revelation of God this morning that probably most of us are reading this. And even as we begin without him saying Jesus, we're like, it's Jesus. And so there's a part of our heart that's already beginning to rejoice in the words that he's saying. We're being reminded of this great truth, of his eternality, of the way that he is our life, uh, that, of the way that he came and was incarnated in the flesh. It's the same thing in longer form in the first chapter of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Do you see, He hasn't actually identified who He's talking about yet, and yet there's great drama and suspense in what He's saying because He's building this great picture in our minds of the majesty and the glory and the splendor of our God and King who is Christ. He says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And immediately we're confronted with good and with evil, with light and with dark, with contrast, which is a thing that John the Apostle seems to love in his writings, is dealing with contrast. And then there's this little way he plays with us a little bit, because in verse 6 of John's uh, first chapter of his gospel, he says, there was a man sent from God. And you're like, okay, he's about to do it. He's about to unveil who he's talking about. And he says, his name was John. And you're going, wait a minute. That's not who we were talking about. He says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through him. Oh, okay, wait, no, we're still going here. The train is still moving. We're still going. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Okay, now here we are. We're in the light. He is the light. The Word, which became flesh, is the light. And what does he say? The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so there's this double creative work that's happening where not only did he make everything that was made and there was nothing that was made that was made without him, but now there's this, this new thing that is happening where people are doubly becoming the children of God, not only created by him, but born through him. Look what it says, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, Emmanuel, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory, and see the, the snowball is still going, right? It's coming down the hill, it's gaining speed, it's picking up, it's getting bigger, and as it's coming, you just want to stand in front of this thing as John is writing, just let it just come over you, just... This, whether it's a crashing wave, a giant avalanche, whatever it is, it's just building and building as it comes. Am I the only one that feels that way as I, as I read this? It's just, man, I love this. Listen, we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think of um, uh, 
the, the original movie of, of, of uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? When, when they're in that creepy boat going through that tunnel and all the lights are going and the suspense is building, Willy Wonka just keeps talking. and talk. That's what I feel like when I'm here. And I'm just like at the edge of my seat, like waiting for what's going to happen, right? He says, John bore witness about, oh, wait, wait, wait. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Listen to this. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come came through. Oh, come on, guys. For the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it's like, whoo, right? It, it, this, this, as John just masterfully kind of pulls it off, and we all knew it was there. Now, now the original writers maybe didn't, or the original readers maybe didn't. The first time you read this, maybe you didn't. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing it this morning, and I hope you're experiencing what I'm talking about. But here, who is he talking about? And it's Jesus, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus Christ, has made him known. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so it's like, boom, the flourish of the hand, the unveiling of the object of his writing. Jesus in all his beauty and majesty, the eternal word of life who gives light to all. And it's like John himself is pulling down the veil of mystery that has been kept up for generation upon generation for so many years. And as he pulls it down, the blinding light of the truth of Jesus Christ flashes out from his words to every reader and to every listener. It's Jesus. So, Maybe this will come as a bit of surprise this morning. I hope it doesn't. But church, this is why we're here today. It's for Jesus. And not just today. This is why the church of Jesus has gathered every Lord's Day for over 2,000 years so that each Week through the preaching of Scripture, both law and gospel, we could have the veil torn off yet again and Christ revealed as if before our eyes and the blinding truth of His light can be shown forth in our lives, revealing every area and everything so that it may be brought into subjection and into submission to Him even as we ourselves are. Church, we are here for Jesus. And if you didn't come here for Jesus this morning, surprise, sorry, we are here for Jesus. Well, that's what we are supposed to be here for. For that is the meal that has been prepared for us and awaits us today. And that is the meal that is being offered to us. But I wonder, I wonder though, I wonder if it is the meal that we desire. 
is the meal that has been prepared for us, that awaits us, that is Jesus himself, is that the meal that we desire? You see, so often we can come to Jesus for what he can offer. But when what he offers is simply himself, we can be prone to disappointingly turn away. John knows this because he experienced this in a very poignant way. We alluded to it last week and I want us this week to take a bit of a closer look. So would you turn to John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, we see this very interesting thing that happens with Jesus and in His ministry. Now, we are going to quickly make it through all of John chapter 6. There is a ton, I mean an absolute treasure field of doctrine contained in this passage that I wish that we had 52 weeks to just stop right here and walk through. We're not going to do that. I promise you the things that are contained here in John 6, we will uh, get to over time because they are things that we are happy and proud and, and longing to proclaim, okay? There is a lot here. And so there's a lot here that maybe would be great for discussion amongst yourselves throughout the week, we are going to move quickly through this chapter, okay? John 6, 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So stage is set. Jesus is present. He's working. His ministry is going about. He's healing the sick. And not only is he healing the sick, but as he does so, a whole crowd of people begin to take notice and they start following him, listen to it, because of the signs that he was doing with the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. About 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and we had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, listen to this, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then 
that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this is an incredible crowd. 5,000 men, that's not including women and children. Estimates have it over 10,000. Some say 15,000. It doesn't matter. Even at 5,000, it's a lot, a lot. It's a lot of people. Okay? And what does Jesus do? He takes five loaves of bread, two fish, thanks God for them, breaks them, starts passing it out, and it just keeps coming. Keeps coming, keeps coming. So much so that all the people there eat, not only eat, they eat their fill, not only eat their fill, but when they're all done, they're all stuffed, they're all kind of lazing around in the grassy area that we know is there because it said so. They pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers, okay? This incredible thing happens. Jesus feeds over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Not only gives them a snack, but there's leftovers. They have to be picked up. It's an incredible miracle. And the people see it. And in verse 14, what happens? They, they recognize it. They affirm it. They say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They make a connection. Mentally, they assent to the truth that is manifested in front of them. Jesus must be the Messiah. And of course, if he's the Messiah then he is here not just to feed us, but to break Rome's tyranny over us, to be our king. And what a king to have, right? We will never have to work again. For why do we work except that we may eat? And so here they see this great opportunity. Here is this man that can feed all of them with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Let's make him our king but this is not the way that Jesus was to be king over them, even though he already was and is king over them. Amen? So he withdrew again to the mountain by himself, as he did regularly to spend time with the Father. So pick it up in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Again, another miracle. Jesus showing his authority over nature itself. But we really want to see what happens next. So let's keep reading. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." Okay, so let's just stop right there real quick. What's happening here? We could say, oh, they are seeking Jesus. Praise God. But is that really what is happening? Now, let me tell you what just happened. Okay, they stuffed themselves the night before. Okay, I don't know about you. Get a little something in my tummy. 
I get a little sleepy, okay? Seems like they just kind of like festival style camp out, okay, all night. Wake up in the morning and they're going, wait a minute, it's breakfast time. Where's Jesus? Have you seen him? Where'd those 12 baskets of leftovers go? I think there's still a little stuff and we break them. Maybe they keep going. We do this all again. Let's see what Jesus had to say. Verse 25. And they found him on the other side of the sea. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Notice like the possess, possessiveness that they already have over him. It's kind of like their own personal little genie, right? Get back in your lamp. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Jesus says, yeah, you're, you're seeking me, but not because you want me, but because you want more bread. But then He says, Seek for the food, work for the food that doesn't perish, but that endures for eternal life, which, what does it say? The Son of Man will give to you. Now, just a couple of chapters before, Jesus had a run-in in chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that? And what happened? He offered her living water. And He said to her, that if she would drink of the water that he could give, that she would never thirst again. For it is the water that leads to, as we saw last week, eternal life. Right? So here, Jesus begins offering them the same thing. And he's saying, the Son of Man can give it to you. I can give it to you. The food that leads, uh, that endures to eternal life. But is this the kind of food they're looking for? Let's keep reading. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Can you believe these guys? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now connect John's first chapter to this one. Who is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world? It's him, Jesus, is talking about himself. Jesus is talking about Jesus. But this is where it gets a little hairy. 
Because it seems that they're asking the right questions and saying the right thing. What must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus tells them, believe. And then gets to the end and says, you can have this bread. They say, sir, give us this bread always. But there's a disconnect between what they're talking about and what Jesus is talking about. So just now we looked at verse 14. They're seeing the miracle Jesus has done, declaring among themselves that he must be the prophet from God come into the earth. Didn't they believe already? No. And here they'd had a sign. They saw the sign. They even connected it and said this must be the prophet that's come to earth from God. But now it's lunchtime. On the next day, by the time they find Jesus, and they miss breakfast, and yesterday's meal is seeming far away. Listen to them. What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Jesus just fed over 5,000 people in front of your eyes with five loaves of bread and two fish. That's your sign. They saw the sign, seemingly made the connection. But still, they do not truly believe, do they? And Jesus reveals it by clearing the table and setting it again, but this time with only one course, one thing offered to eat, one thing offered to to drink. Let's look at it, verses 35 through 40. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the next verse, verse 41 And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Do you see Jesus clears the table? And the only thing on the table, Jesus says, now is me. But here is the indictment of this text. Jesus was not enough for them. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? Let's keep reading as Jesus unpacks this further. They said, after this grumbling and considering who Jesus is, now they're starting to second guess what they had said in verse 14. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. 
No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's saying, guys, you missed it. The manna in the wilderness that your fathers ate, it was a foretaste, a foreshadow, a type of the antitype, which is me. I am the true manna from heaven and in me you will eat and have eternal life. But the manna that you think you crave can still only fill your body for today and tomorrow. You will still die. What is Jesus saying? He's basically leveling an indictment saying that he is not their God. Their bellies are. Their bellies are. Even as they come and think about as they come, what must we do to do the works of God? Why are they saying that? Because they're falling back into the old system of the land that they had possessed, which was filled with idols. And why was it filled with idols? Because as people endured the curse of sin and, and the tyranny of sin, and they plowed the ground with the sweat of their brow, and they suffered under the beating sun one day, and the torrential rains on the next day, the heat and the cold, they said to themselves, there must be gods, and they must be angry. So what must we do to do their works, to appease them, so that they will give us what we want? And so began the sacrificial system that was offered to these idols as they offered not only grain and food and animal sacrifices, but also began to sacrifice their own children on the altar so that they could continue to satisfy and gratify the lusts of their flesh that came from their belly and from their wicked hearts. And Jesus is leveling an indictment against them and saying, your, your God is not Jehovah. For I am Jehovah and I'm offering myself, but you do not want me. You want only what can fill your belly for today. Your God is your belly. Still you die. And so picking it up. In verse 52. It says the Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them truly, truly I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And so what happened when Jesus said these things? It's like, you didn't get it? Let me say it again. The only thing I'm offering you today is me. Verse 60. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And the implication being, they turned away. This is not the turning of Ruth. This is the turning of Ruth's sister-in-law. Away from the Lord, turning back to the land of the pagans. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples themselves even were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The amazing thing is that they will. (laughs) He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This interesting picture, this expose into the life and ministry of Jesus, into this happening There's so much doctrine, like I said, we're not going to take time to get into it today, but simply to look here and be reminded because it will be so important for us as we continue in 1 John. Hear me, it's simply this this morning. If we are coming to Jesus simply and only for His benefits, rather than to receive Him, we will find that we will get nothing at all. It's interesting that if you preach the gospel to Hindus, most Hindus have no problem accepting Jesus as a God, as a God. And most of their families have no problem if their children or whoever, whichever member part of their family comes home and says, I've 
accepted Jesus as my God. Because they have many gods. And they believe in many gods. And they worship many gods. And they pray to many gods. And they make sacrifices to many gods. The difference comes. The persecution comes. When that Hindu family member comes home and says, I believe that Jesus is the only God. And he is now my God. That's when persecution begins. Why? Because that's where faith begins. It's not enough to mentally assent that Jesus is who he said he is without truly trusting and believing and placing your faith in him as that for you. And it's one thing to think about putting that in different culture and context, but listen to me, church. People who call themselves Christians every day come and sit in the pews and the chairs of churches every week and they worship Jesus as one of the many idols that they serve, hoping that the works they were doing for him that day as they came and they stood when it was time to stand and sat when it was time to sit and sang when it was time to sing and did the line thing and ate the bread and drank the wine and sang the songs and greeted the people and said the stuff, that that's enough to appease that God so that he will do for me the things that I'm hoping that he will do for me. And let's go a little bit further. We're all guilty of doing this. In one way, shape, form, or another. Of coming to Christ. And because of the sin and wickedness in our own hearts. Trying to use Him as an idol rather than submit to Him as God. If we are coming to Jesus simply and only for His benefits, rather than to receive Him, we will find that we get nothing at all. Why? Because you might actually get what you want. Because those people who come and sit in the chairs and do all the things that need to be doing, they get some of the temporary benefits. The love and fellowship and community, the service of the body, all the stuff that we read in Acts 2, 42 through 47 this morning. They get to experience some of that here and now. But for them, if they do not come to that place 
of trusting and believing in Christ to be who He is for them. In receiving Him, then those earthly, temporary benefits will be all that they receive. And it will be like the manna that fills their belly for today and satisfies them again this week and tomorrow they will die and the judgment will come and the most fearful words that can ever be uttered will be uttered to them by Jesus Depart from me. I never knew you. Church, the table is set. But the only thing offered is Jesus. But what is offered is Jesus. <laughs> and in Him is Every spiritual blessing, every treasure of eternal life, wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, peace, happiness, joy, all locked up in Him. But here's the deal. If you go just trying to get those things and don't go for Him, you don't get those things. But if you go for Him, there's the beauty and the mystery and the wonder. You get it all. And you get it all because it's contained in Him. It's not separate from Him. And you cannot separate the benefits of Christ from Christ Himself any more than He could have possibly not fulfilled everything that was prophesied about Him. Why? Because it wasn't a checklist that Jesus had to come and pull out every once in a while and make sure He did the right thing the things that were prophesied about Jesus that he would fulfill, he would fulfill because it, can, it, was, it was describing who he is. His very character and nature determined the fulfillment of those things. And his very character and nature assures those who are in him the very benefits that we love and are so grateful for. Now hear me, it's okay to be grateful for the benefits of Christ. It's okay to sing about them and to pray and thank God for them and to remind each other of them, but do not fall prey to elevating or trying to separate the benefits of Christ from Christ himself. The table is set. The only thing offered is Jesus, but what is offered is Jesus. The question is for us today. The axe head of the law leveled at us is, is he enough? Is he enough? Or is your belly Still your God. 
You want what can satisfy your lusts rather than the bread from heaven that can satisfy your soul. And church, I admit that I am myself sometimes far too easily pleased. I lose sight of Jesus and focus on the benefits, and in doing so, I find myself losing the intimacy I've experienced before with Christ. And in those moments, I need to return to Christ. I need to have a Ruth kind of turning instead of her sister-in-law to come to Him for Him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you need that as well. But for some, it's worse. They have come and continue to come to church to surround themselves with godly people and experience some of the good, some of the earthly benefit of being connected to Christ, not in a salvific way and saving way, but in a temporary association. Close enough to experience some of the love and community of God's people, but not close enough to actually taste Jesus. You still only taste bread and wine and not the eternal life that is offered in the Son of God. There is no desire to abide in Him and have His life abide in you. No, for that would require change. Which is going to be John's point as we continue in 1 John and why this point is so important because being connected to Jesus, receiving from Him eternal life that begins now and not just sometime in the future means having that life flowing through you now in such a way that the fruit of your life, the product of your life begins to make itself manifest outwardly in you. Inwardly first, yes. Dormant sometimes for a while, Yes, but testimony to those changing desires which eventually work themselves out into changed habits and patterns in our lives is what happens to those who truly have believed in Jesus Christ, those who feed upon Him and abide in Him. Is that not what John points to when he talks of fellowship with the Father and with the Son in 1 John 1, 1-4, abiding in Him. But hear me, there is no fellowship with the Father without coming through the Son. Jesus is the way to the Father. Some come to Him, not for what He offers, so that He might become like one of a thousand different idols in your life that you only come to when you are hungry for what you think they can provide, looking to do the works that they require so that you can get what your lusts desire. But come to Jesus for Jesus, to receive Him, and in Him may you find that you have truly found all that your heart truly needs, truly desires, and truly requires. The law leveled at us today is, is Jesus enough? But the gospel comes to us in Jesus' own words from John chapter 6, that anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Hear the words of the Savior. Come to Him today for Him. Repent for how you have come merely for what He can offer and find 
His arms open wide to receive you, to forgive you, and to allow you today to feed on Him in your heart by faith. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is Jesus. And thank you that he is what and who is offered to us today. I pray, God, that you would forgive us for where we have sought merely your gifts instead of seeking you. Forgive us. Change us and put a desire in our hearts for you. In Jesus' name, amen.